The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. It's February 21st, 2020, and Illinois still wears the remnants of winter like a dirty shawl. 300 miles south of Chicago, in the town of Pinckneyville, Mounds of gray slush and ice line the roads after one of the heaviest February snowfalls on record. It's such a small place that the 1,500 inmates at the nearby Pinckneyville Correctional Center account for almost a third of the town's population. But today, one of the prison's oldest inmates will leave its confines forever. Chester Weaker is about to become a free man for the first time since 1961. For almost six decades, he has been cooped up in a cell with bare concrete walls and a lumpy mattress. The figure who waits patiently for the gates to slide open is a far cry from the young man who went in all those years ago. He's 80 now. The once thick head of hair has given way to a pale scalp with a faint halo of gray. Uyghur was sentenced to life imprisonment back in the 60s for a shocking triple homicide, although he has always maintained his innocence. The irony isn't lost on him that had he held his hands up and admitted guilt, he'd likely have been out of here years ago. His pleas of innocence had no more effect on the parole board than they had with a court that sentenced him. But Uyghur has time on his hands. What else can he do but keep trying? In the end, the 24th time was the charm. With a count of nine to four in his favor, the state's longest serving inmate became a free man. Waiting for him outside the prison is his sister, Mary Pruitt, along with her husband and two daughters. She has lobbied tirelessly for his release over the years. The pair share their first hug in 58 years, before Uyghur is helped into his niece's Honda SUV. They head to Chicago, where Uyghur has a place in a halfway house. The whole way there, he stares out of the window, drinking in the world that has changed immeasurably. He's missed everything from the moon landing to the birth of the internet. And of course, almost every birthday for his own children, who were only three in one when he was locked up. Uyghur wasn't even allowed out to attend his own parents' funerals. At 80 years old and in poor health, there's no telling how much of his life he might get to enjoy on the outside. What keeps him going, though, is the thought that one day he might clear his name. It's the only thing I want, he tells a journalist later that week. I don't want to die with people thinking I'm guilty of a crime I never committed. Many ex-cons cling on to this hope, but for Uyghur, there's a real chance he might get his wish. Forensic science evolved in leaps and bounds over the decades, and he's hopeful that his legal team can compel fresh tests on evidence still held from the crime scene. But while it may be science that says once and for all whether Uyghur killed three women, one of the strangest pieces of evidence is a mysterious deathbed confession. It was allegedly made back in 1982, but didn't surface until 2004. And if true, 
could mean that Uyghur has been locked up for almost six decades for a crime he had no part in. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Chester Weaker, of the anonymous deathbed confession that might clear him of a triple homicide about the brutal slaying of three friends out for a hike in a scenic Illinois park. The allegations of coercion that led to a man serving almost six decades for a crime he maintains he didn't commit. And a mysterious confession decades later that suggests he might have been telling the truth all these years. I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It's Monday, March 14th, 1960. A station wagon winds its way along I-80, bound for Starved Rock State Park. The three friends inside are heading off for a four-day break. 50-year-old Lillian Oding and her companions Francis Murphy, also 50, and Mildred Lindquist, 57, all hail from Riverside, a suburb of Chicago. The trip is something of an impulse decision a last-minute holiday they only agreed to at yesterday's church service. Lillian, in particular, is eager to have some time away with Frances and Mildred. She has spent the winter nursing her husband back to health after a heart attack. The journey there is spent planning their getaway, a mix of relaxation and fresh country air. The three are keen hikers and are determined to get out and explore the natural beauty of the park. They pull up outside the main building, entrance framed by a matching pair of flags, stars, and stripes hanging loose in the early afternoon sunshine. 
It's not their first trip here, and they head inside to check in, then grab a light lunch in the dining room. Their mood is light, as if just being here is enough to strip away any worry from weary shoulders. There's a light dusting of snow, so the three head back to their rooms and slip on their rubber galoshes before heading out into the park. Frances carries her camera, and Lillian has a pair of binoculars dangling around her neck, both keen bird watchers, hoping to spot some unusual wildlife. Staff see them trudging west along the bluff trail in the direction of St. Louis Canyon. It's the last time the three women will be seen alive. Lillian Oding had promised to call her husband George, and when he hasn't heard from her by late evening, he calls the lodge. Staff are unable to locate her, but assure him they'll get a message to her to call tomorrow. He calls back the following day and is told by a mistaken member of staff that she was spotted at breakfast but must have gone out. When he calls back on Wednesday, he insists that someone go and check their rooms. A staff member scurries off to do just that, noticing on the way to their rooms that Lillian's station wagon is in the parking lot, covered in a thick blanket of snow from the night before. Inside the first room, it only takes a matter of seconds for an uneasy feeling to set in. Neither of the twin beds have been slept in. Suitcases sit stacked against the wall, and the towels in the bathroom haven't been used. When staff relay this back to George Oding, he grows frantic with worry. His wife and her friends are missing, and could have been for anything up to two days. Conditions outside after last night's blizzard are treacherous. He hangs up and immediately calls a close friend of his, Virgil Peterson, head of the Chicago Crime Commission. Peterson wastes no time and notifies the state police. Within minutes, LaSalle County Sheriff Ray Utsi begins mobilizing his men to form a search party. It's slow going thanks to the wintry landscape. Officers and staff work their way along trails. Snow from the previous night crunches underfoot as they weave through the tree line. Helping law enforcement are a group of teenagers from a forestry camp for juvenile offenders. The youngsters follow orders from the sheriff coordinating the search party. And in a cruel twist, it's these boys, rather than law enforcement officers, who make a gruesome find 90 minutes into the search. The boys make their way into St. Louis Canyon. At the far end is a waterfall that freezes when the winter sets in. The majestic cascade of ice draws their eye, even though they've seen it dozens of times before. One of them drags his gaze away, spotting a darker patch of ground up ahead. It's the entrance to a cave that stands out against the blinding white snow, protected from the elements by an overhanging ledge of rock. A series of shapes are on the ground. Is it just debris or could it be the three women sheltering from the cold weather? As the boys approach, they realize it's the missing women, but none of them are moving. They stop only feet away and see to their horror that all three are dead. And from the looks of it, the cold snap has had nothing to do with it. What started as a search and rescue mission has just become a murder investigation. 
the boys run and fetch police officers, and it isn't long before a number of them arrive to cordon off what is now a crime scene. All three women have had the clothing torn away from the lower halves of their bodies. Two of them are tied together with what looks like twine, and all three have been badly beaten. The patchwork of purple and black bruises that colors most of their exposed skin is enough to make even the most hardened detective's stomachs do backflips. If it weren't for the rocky ledge that juts out, protecting the area around the entrance to the cave, the women might not have been found until much later. Eight inches fell last night, and it obscures the ground everywhere else as far as the eye can see. With no idea exactly how long the women have lain there, there's no time to lose. Police set up roadblocks in and around the state park. Staff and guests are questioned. It's a case unlike any the officers have seen before, and early stages of the investigation include some questionable choices. In an effort to uncover any clues the snow might have covered up, officers bring in several weed burners, similar to many flamethrowers to melt through the layers. It's impossible to say what trace evidence may have been burned up in the process, but they do find several key items. Around 10 feet from the bodies, Francis Murphy's camera lies on its side. Its leather carry case is streaked with blood and the strap is snapped. Beside that is a bloody pair of binoculars. Everyone pitches in to search for clues. Even LaSalle County State Attorney Harland Warren joins the team combing the area. And it's he who finds what they believe to be the murder weapon. A three-foot-long tree limb with dark blood matted in the cracked bark. Police are able to deduce from the blood spatter patterns that the women were killed deeper in the canyon than dragged under the ledge. By the time the bodies are lifted onto cloth stretchers, officers have to light up the path back to the lodge with flashlights and lanterns. The women are taken to Hull's funeral home in nearby Ottawa to be autopsied. There's evidence to suggest all three have been sexually assaulted, and doctors estimate they died just hours after setting off from the lodge on their hike. Further searches of their rooms at the lodge confirm all of their jewelry and valuables had been left there, so robbery seems an unlikely motive. Rumors begin to circulate that one or more of their husbands have conspired to kill them. These are quickly quashed, though. Not only do they have alibis, but Sheriff Utzi also believes that if the murders had been premeditated, the killer would surely have brought a weapon instead of scrabbling around for whatever they could lay their hands on. So police begin their investigation by focusing on the staff and other guests at the lodge. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. All are questioned, and staff are even asked to submit to a polygraph, more commonly known as a lie detector test. Every single one of them passes with flying colors. 
but a few of the staff warrant a closer look. One such individual is 21-year-old Chester Weger. He's a married father of two who works as a dishwasher at the main lodge. At the time of Lillian, Francis, and Mildred's disappearance, several staff members claimed to see scratches on his face. As it turns out, Weger has had a brush with the law before. In 1952, when he was around 12 or 13, he was arrested on statutory rape charges in Oglesby. Details of the case are redacted due to the ages of those involved, but it's enough to put him on the police's radar. Officers also spot dark stains on the buckskin jacket he's wearing, which he willingly gives up for analysis. Initially, tests reveal it's animal blood, but that doesn't deter investigators from looking into him. Uyghur is as close as they have to a suspect. Ultimately though, he passes not one, but three polygraphs and they're forced to discount him. Alarmingly, for a case this high profile, the investigation seems to grind almost to a halt after this. Forensic science is in its infancy and police don't yet have access to techniques that will become everyday occurrences in decades to come like DNA testing. The lack of suspects and motive isn't helped by clashes over the case's jurisdiction. Technically, it belongs to state attorney Warren, but the police maintain they should lead the case as the crime was committed on state park land, part of the area within their purview. In a small town like Geraldton, where everyone knows everyone's business, tragedy always hits hard. The effect the murders have on the community is instant. The number of guests staying at the lodge drops through the floor. Hardware stores sell out of deadbolts, and sporting goods stores see gun sales rocket. People are scared. And who wouldn't be, while a murderer still walks free? March gives way to April, and other than confirming that splinters taken from all of the victim's wounds match samples taken from the bloody tree branch, the case has barely moved an inch. State attorney Harland Warren finds himself between a rock and a hard place. 1960 is an election year. He's been so focused on keeping the investigation moving forward that he's neglected his re-election campaign. As the summer rolls by, he's criticized from all angles in the press and decides to take matters into his own hands. One item that has been of particular interest is the twine with which the women were bound. Warren uses his own money to buy a microscope and starts examining the samples. He quickly determines that two types have been used, 20-ply cord and 12-ply cord. The most logical place to start looking for where it could have come from is the lodge itself. In September that year, Warren handpicks two deputies to report to him personally, Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess. The three men meet with the lodge manager in early April after months of frustration, Warren gets his first major breakthrough. They find both types of twine in the lodge kitchen. The manager tells him it's used for wrapping food. Dummett and Hess reach out to the company that manufactures it and quickly get confirmation that the twine used to bind the three women came from the stockpile in the lodge. The logical conclusion the investigators draw is that the killer either works there or has access to it. Contradicting this theory, 
are the polygraphs that all the staff passed back in March. Armed with the information about the twine, Warren now questions the accuracy of the tests. In what could be a last roll of the dice, he enlists the help of a firm in Chicago to run independent tests of their own, rather than use the police equipment again. They set up a cabin near the main lodge and recall every member of staff who had worked the week of the murders. One after another, they file through, nervous at having the spotlight shone on them a second time. The first 10 pass with flying colors, and Warren and his deputies start to wonder if this is a wild goose chase. That all changes soon after number 11 walks in. It's a face they remember from the first round of polygraphs. Chester Weaker. Weaker looks no more nervous than the previous 10 subjects as he walks into the cabin. He's not a big man, 5'8", and slight build. Police are interested to learn that he's not employed at the lodge anymore. A few months back, he left to work as a house painter with his father. Hooked up to the machine, Uyghur answers all their questions, just like he had back in March. They thank him for his time, but as he leaves, Warren catches a peculiar look on the technician's face. When the door has closed behind Uyghur, the technician turns to Warren and says, that's your man. The polygraph result on its own isn't enough to arrest him, but Dummett and Hess attack the case with renewed vigor. If the original polygraph was wrong, it stands to reason other elements deserve a second look. They asked Uyghur, once again, for his buckskin jacket, the one that the state police found animal blood on. This time, it's sent to the FBI lab in Washington. Just as with the lie detector, the results this time around are completely different. Traces of human blood are found mixed in with the animal blood. A team of 14 officers set up round-the-clock surveillance on Uyghur. At some point in the weeks that follow, Uyghur realizes he's being watched, but officers report him as relaxed, even stopping to chat with him on one occasion. But unbeknownst to Uyghur, Dummett has another charge he'd like to bring against him. In the fall of 1959, a 17-year-old girl was raped by a man who bound her and her boyfriend with 20-strand twine, the very same type used in the Starved Rock murders. Dummett tracked down the girl who was attacked and slipped in a picture of Uyghur amongst a lineup of other possible suspects. When Uyghur's photo came up, the girl allegedly began to sob and cried. That's him. The new evidence against Weaker is enough to bring him back in for questioning, but Harland Warren puts the brakes on. He tells Dummett that to charge Weaker now would leave him open to claims from a defense attorney that he's using a high-profile trial as a re-election tool. Instead, Weaker is left under surveillance. Ironically, Warren loses the election anyway, unable to shake the public perception of mishandling the Starved Rock case. Dummett and Hess move fast following the results, bringing Uyghur in for questioning that same week. They work on him for hours, 
hitting him with wave after wave of questions about the 1959 rape and the 1960 Starved Rock murders. Uyghur sticks to his guns, denying everything. They go at him long into the night, until shortly after midnight, an exhausted Uyghur asks to see his family. His wife and his parents are brought in, and he's allowed a few minutes reprieve from the interrogation. Dummett steps back in to tell them their time is up and ushers them out, leaving only Uyghur and Hess in the room. According to a statement Hess will give the following day, he turned to Uyghur at this point and said, There are just the two of us here. Just tell me about it. All right, Uyghur allegedly said. I did it. Given that around 2 a.m., Uyghur's supposed confession is a complete 180 from his previous statements. Still, police state that Uyghur proceeds to walk them through the triple homicide. It started out as a robbery. He tried to take what he thought was a pocketbook, but it turned out to be the binocular case. They say Uyghur claims he tied them up with twine so he could make a clean getaway. Francis Murphy somehow got loose and hit him with the binoculars, then scratched his face. Weaker then allegedly picked up a tree branch and hit her. Thinking he had killed her, he bludgeoned the other two to death to make sure there were no witnesses. Francis recovered consciousness, and Weaker was forced to finish what he had started. Detectives transcribe the confession and get Weaker to sign it. Over the days that follow, not only does he repeat his confession, but even participates in a reenactment with detectives. All this takes place before he meets with his court-appointed attorney. Once he speaks with them, he flips everything on its head and says he didn't do it. He swears he's innocent. Uyghur claims Dummett and Hess forced the confession out of him. He says the detective scared him into signing by saying he would get the death penalty if he didn't. Admit what he did, and he might be out in as little as 14 years with good behavior. The new state attorney, Robert Richardson, isn't buying it. If Uyghur is to win his freedom, he's going to have to convince a jury of his peers. In February of 1961, the trial of Chester Uyghur for the triple homicide at Starved Rock begins. Prosecuting alongside Richardson is Anthony Raculia. They've taken the decision only to file charges for the murder of Lillian Oding. It's a calculated risk that allows them to come after him for the other charges in the event of a mistrial or acquittal. It lasts around three weeks, until on March 3rd, Uyghur's 22nd birthday, the jury return a guilty verdict. The sentence is life imprisonment. Uyghur doesn't realize it at the time, but it could have been much worse. Reporters interview jury members afterwards. They ask them if they are aware that under Illinois law, Uyghur can apply for parole in a matter of years. Many respond by saying if they had known this, they would have sent him to the electric chair. Uyghur's attorney appeals, but the Illinois Supreme Court affirms the original verdict in September 1962. He's left to face a life behind bars, still protesting his innocence to anyone who will listen. No one does.
His first attempt at parole is in 1972. But the board votes unanimously for him to stay where he is. This becomes a predictable pattern, and his requests are denied time and time again. The board cite his refusal to admit his crimes and show remorse as one of the main reasons to keep him exactly where he is. Apart from his family and his own attorney, Uyghur's cries of innocence fall on deaf ears. It's decades until anyone else even suggests he might be innocent. But when it comes, it's from a source no one saw coming. In 2004, Uyghur's legal team, led by attorney Donna Kelly, attempts to get his case reopened. Amongst the documents they present to the court is an affidavit sworn by Sergeant Mark Gibson of the Chicago PD to the LaSalle County Court. It recounts an incident that occurred in the early 80s and details a deathbed confession made by an unnamed woman who claimed to have knowledge of murders that took place at the state park. While it doesn't name Uyghur or the Starved Rock victims directly, what it contains is potentially explosive if true. Sergeant Gibson writes that he was dispatched to St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago either in 1982 or 83. He can't recall the exact date. A female patient had asked to speak to the police, saying she needed to clear her conscience. Gibson says that the woman told him about being at the state park with friends. She said things had gotten out of hand and multiple victims were killed. She then states that they dragged the bodies. While he doesn't remember her exact words, he was in no doubt that she was making a deathbed confession. In his affidavit, he writes, I was left with the impression that she and multiple persons had murdered multiple victims in the state park. Had this woman known the truth about the Starved Rock murders all these years? If so, what had stopped her from coming forward? And who might she have been protecting these past few decades? At this point, the woman's daughter came into the room and shouted at Gibson and his partner to leave. The woman died before she could be questioned any further. Gibson says he passed the information on to a detective. What isn't clear is what, if anything, was done with it at the time. As explosive a development as this deathbed confession feels, there's a problem. Without the name of the woman, there is no way to corroborate her claim that Uyghur played no part in the murders. As a result, the affidavit containing details of the confession is not allowed to be on record as part of the court hearing on June 10, 2004. Luckily, in spite of the omission of the deathbed confession, the court allows the DNA evidence to be re-examined. Tests are carried out on the strands of hair found in Lillian Oding's hands and the blood droplets found on Uyghur's buckskin jacket. Uyghur and his legal team anxiously await the results, but their hopes are dashed on July 8, 2004, when the evidence is found to be contaminated. Without DNA evidence or the deathbed confession to bolster his case, the situation is starting to look dire for Chester Weaker. But unbeknownst to him or his legal team, help is about to come from the most unlikely 
of sources. David Reculia was only seven months old at the time of the Starved Rock murders. He recalls having a fear of Uyghur, even though Uyghur has been behind bars all throughout his childhood. It stems from the fact his father, Anthony, was part of the legal team that put him there. In 2003, David reads an article with a story about Uyghur's attorney, Donna Kelly, who is looking to reopen Uyghur's case and argue his innocence. Amongst other things, she accused David's father of having made inaccurate claims about Uyghur during the case. David had long since held his father on a pedestal, but the claims troubled David and he set about looking for answers. In 2005, he decides to capture on camera the journey his own questions take him on. Despite how much time has passed since the murders, a number of people who were involved in the case are still alive. One of these is his father, who is bemused as to why his son is wasting his time. Anthony Reculia reiterates his absolute belief in Uyghur's guilt. It's so unshakable that he makes a point of attending every one of Uyghur's parole hearings. He does say, however, that if the case were tried today, he doesn't believe they would get a conviction on the strength of the confession alone. In April 2005, a clemency hearing for the Chester Uyghur is held, and David gets permission to film it. Donna Kelly's arguments begin to win him over to the fact that Uyghur might actually be innocent. She asks the board to consider how an unarmed man of his stature persuaded three women to descend into a canyon and allow themselves to be tied up. If the motive was robbery, as Uyghur's confession indicates, why were they left with their watches and rings in place? Anthony Reculia counters by pointing out that Uyghur gave information in his confession that only someone who was present would know about. There's a mention in it of a low-flying plane passing overhead that prompted Uyghur to drag the bodies under the ledge. Kelly strikes back by pointing out that one of Uyghur's interrogators, Bill Dummett, had been a member of the Ottawa Airmen's Club from which the plane originated. An affidavit from the pilot confirms Dummett was a regular fixture at the club and would have known how to source details about flight plans to insert into the confession. Dummett has his reputation put under the spotlight. It emerges that he had an unofficial nickname, Dustpan Dummett. The man you called in when you wanted something cleared up. Several witnesses state that at one point during the investigation, Dummett even took the murder weapon home to display on his mantelpiece. The threats that Dummett allegedly made to Uyghur about the electric chair prior to his confession come under scrutiny again. Dummett denied this back at the original trial, but Donna Kelly points to sworn statements from the assistant state attorney in 1961, Craig Armstrong, that confirmed Dummett had indeed told Uyghur that he would ride the thunderbolt, a reference to the chair. The inference here is clear. If you believe Armstrong, then Dummett has lied under oath. And if he has lied about this, what else might he have lied about? Several family members of the victims who attend the hearing speak for those who can't. They give an impassioned plea for Uyghur to stay exactly where he is. 
could the case that has seemed for decades like a slam dunk finally be showing the beginnings of reasonable doubt? Donna Kelly certainly thinks so, and so too does David Reculia. Kelly even goes as far as proposing an alternative suspect. George Spiros was the son of Nick Spiros, the lodge owner at the time of the murders. George had passed the polygraph, although police couldn't confirm his alibi. Days after the bodies turned up, George disappeared. His father sent him to stay with family in Greece, and George didn't return until years later. In a bizarre twist, George Spiros wouldn't live long enough to hear the outcome of the hearing. He was found dead two weeks after Kelly named him in her petition. The cause of death? Self-inflicted gunshot. Some say it was linked to his recent cancer diagnosis, but George left no note to confirm or deny these claims. No follow-up investigation took place into any connection he might have had to the Starved Rock murders. Ultimately, though, the hearing does not go Weaker's way. The governor denies the request for his sentence to be commuted to time served. Weaker is returned back to his cell, beaten but not defeated, still telling anyone who will listen of his innocence. Now Weaker is once again at the mercy of the parole board. As Weaker goes through this biannual cycle of appearing in front of the board, Opinion in LaSalle County is still very much divided. Some, like Anthony Reculia, say they sleep easier at night knowing Uyghur is still behind bars. But there are others close to the case who have very different views to those they held back in the 60s. One juror, Nancy Porter, is asked in 2016 about her recollections of the case. When speaking about the verdict, she says, I don't think any of us were 100% sure. It was the fact he'd signed a confession. There was nothing to prove that he did it besides that. She goes on to say the reason they opted for life inside instead of the death penalty was in case somebody else was later charged. At least this way, the jury felt he'd still be alive to see that. At the time, she says, we believed in the police officers, but after we got out, there were 12 people who had doubts about their testimony. This just serves to hammer how close a call the verdict actually was. More to the point, the question of whether the confession was indeed obtained by threatening Weaker with a death penalty now takes on chilling significance. While the weight of public opinion feels it could be moving in Weaker's favor, statements like the one made by the juror aren't enough for a retrial. Weger has said all along that he would rather die in prison than admit to crimes he is adamant he didn't commit. It's starting to seem like that's exactly what will happen. But in May 2019, six months before Weger's 24th attempt at parole, something happens that could change Weger's fortunes. Anthony Reculia dies. He has been at every hearing so far, a staunch advocate of keeping Weaker behind bars. On November 29, 2019, with no Reculia to sway the board, Weaker's prayers are answered. 
they vote nine to four in his favor. And on February 21st, 2020, 80-year-old Uyghur walks free. For some, this would be a chance to relax and enjoy what time they have left on the outside. For Chester Uyghur, though, his burning desire to clear his name hasn't faded one bit. He has a new attorney by now, Andy Hale, who petitions the court for another crack at DNA testing. This may not have panned out the last time, but forensic science has come on leaps and bounds since 2004. Hale convinces a judge to let a firm called Microtrace take a look at the evidence. They have consulted on such iconic cases as the Unabomber and John JonBenet Ramsey. In total, they review 313 pieces of evidence and report back in late October 2021, saying they believe viable testing could indeed be done. The judge agrees that the tests can take place and Hale narrows the request down to just eight items. These include hairs found in Lillian Oding's hand, as well as cigarette butts and twine found at the scene. If no trace of Uyghur can be found on the items, it'll be a huge step towards clearing his name. Uyghur's ongoing legal battle thrusts the case back into the spotlight. Regaining his freedom has attracted more interest than just the press. Actor Mark Wahlberg teams up with David Reculia to produce a three-part HBO special called Murders at Starved Rock. It's released on December 21st, 2021, and features large amounts of footage from the interviews David did 15 years ago, as well as capturing Uyghur's release. Amongst the hours of interview footage that makes it into the HBO special are some emotional conversations with Uyghur himself. Whoever killed these women, Uyghur says, his eyes filling with tears. They're still out there somewhere. They ruined my life by keeping me locked up for something I never done. It's a statement that still divides a community, even after all these years. Interestingly, when asked who he thinks is responsible for the murders, Andy Hale has reached the same conclusion as his predecessor, Donna Kelly. He shares a recording of an interview with Sandra Bland, a friend of the Weaker family. In it, Bland says an acquaintance of Weaker's, Stanley Tucker, told her years ago that he and George Spiros committed the murders. She doesn't elaborate as to why she didn't share the information with police at the time. As with so many aspects of the case, this never amounts to more than hearsay. Both Hale and Weger know deep down that the only way to quash this conviction is through forensics. The results of the fresh round of DNA tests are made public on August 1st, 2022. Andy Hale stands at the foot of the courthouse steps, one hand on Chester Weger's shoulder, and a triumphant look on his face. Of the eight items they had permission to test, only the single hair found on Francis Murphy's glove proved viable. The tests performed show that the hair did not belong to Uyghur. Hale confirms he'll take the case back to the state attorney and set the wheels in motion to ask for the conviction to be vacated. If he gets his wish, it will be the longest prison sentence to be vacated in U.S. legal history. But Hale has plans to go one step further. 
he announces he'll seek permission to compare the new DNA profile against existing records on CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. Maybe Chester Weger's exoneration won't be the end of the story. Maybe the real killer's DNA is on file and waiting to be matched. But for Chester Weger, the journey is nearly over. He has his freedom, but the real prize will be proving his innocence once and for all. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Thomas Craig. He's a man with a history of violence against women, and it's no surprise that when 20-year-old beauty queen Anne Zappelli is brutally murdered in 1969, police want to speak with him. Not only does he live near the crime scene, but fled town the night of the murder. What follows is one of the most controversial murder investigations in Australian history, with many people citing police incompetence. Decades later, Craig's friend and partner in crime, Norm Raisbeck, makes a shocking confession from his hospital bed. But will it be enough to finally solve Anne's murder? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Rob Scrag, supervising editor Jane O and Kevin Pham, sound design by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 